Chapter 14 The Family Man One morning I was walking back and forth in the grounds with my head gardener, considering where improvements could best be introduced, when my father rode into the courtyard on his old donkey. I hastened forward and, after helping him to dismount, was about to go into the garden with him, as I believed he'd come to enjoy the beauty of our flowers. But he preferred to enter the nearest reception room, and, when I ordered my man to bring some refreshments, he declined. He wished to speak with me without being disturbed. Overcome by a feeling of uneasiness and scenting danger ahead, I sat down on a low seat beside him. My son, he began, in a tone of deepest earnestness, your wife has, so far, only borne you two daughters, and my Brahmins tell me that there is no prospect that she will present you with a son. Now, it is said, and with much truth, that the man dies miserably for whom there is no son to offer the sacrifices proper to the dead. Oh, I don't blame you, son, he added hastily, perhaps observing that I'd become somewhat agitated, and although I was not aware how in this matter I could possibly have deserved blame, I thanked him with suitable humility for his clemency and kissed his hand. No, I must blame myself, because in choosing your wife, I allowed myself to be dazzled in too great a degree by worldly considerations, having reference to family and possessions, and did not observe the characteristic marks sufficiently. The girl whom I now have in mind for you comes, it is true, from a family which is by no means distinguished and far from rich, nor can one praise her for her possession of what the superficial observer might call beauty. But, by way of recompense, she has a navel which sits deep and is turned to the right, both hands and feet bear lotus, urn and wheel marks, her hair is quite smooth, except for on her neck where she has two whirls curling to the right, and of a maiden who possesses such marks, the wise say that she will bear five heroic sons. I declared myself perfectly satisfied with the prospect, thanked my father for the kindness with which he looked out for me, and said I was ready to lead the maiden home at once. For I thought to myself, well, if it has to be. At once, cried out my father in accents of horror. My son, moderate your impatience. We are at present in the southern course of the sun. When this deity enters his northern course, and we have reached the half of the month in which the moon waxes, then we will choose a favourable day for the joining of hands. But not before, not before, my son. Otherwise, what good would all the bride's qualities do for us? I begged my father to have no anxiety. I would have patience for the time mentioned, and would in all things be guided by his wisdom. On which note he praised my dutifulness, gave me his blessing, and allowed me to order refreshments. At last the day approached. In truth, I did not ardently long for it, but it was the one on which all the propitious signs were found to be united. The ceremonies this time were much more tedious. I needed a full fourteen days of instruction beforehand in order to master all the necessary sentences. The agony of fear I endured during the joining of hands in the house of my father-in-law it is hardly possible to put into words. I trembled without intermission, filled with a horrible dread lest I should not recite some verse correctly or in keeping with the action to which it belonged. For my father would surely have never forgiven me for it. And yet, in my anxiety, I had almost forgotten the chief thing. For instead of taking my bride Savitri's thumb, I reached out to seize her four fingers, as though I wished her to bear me daughters. But luckily she had the presence of mind enough to push her thumb into my hand instead. I was literally bathed in perspiration by the time I was finally able to yoke in the bulls for our departure. Meanwhile, my bride inserted into each of the collar holes the branch of a fruit-bearing tree, and I spoke the required couplet with a feeling the worst must now be past. The dangers, however, did not by any means lie behind us yet. 
It's true that we reached the house without encountering any of the numerous little mishaps which, on such occasions, seemed to lie in wait for their unfortunate victims. And at the door Savitri was lifted from the wagon by three Brahmin women of blameless life and who had all given birth to boys and whose husbands yet lived. So far all had gone well. But now, brother, imagine the shock I received when, on entering the house, my wife's foot all but touched the threshold. To this day I cannot conceive whence I drew the resolution to lift her up high in my arms and thereby hinder such contact from possibly, from possibly taking place. Nevertheless, even this was an irregularity and, when entering the house, was itself bad enough. But to add to it, I for my own part forgot to enter with the right foot first. Fortunately, the wedding guests, and especially my father, were so nearly beside themselves at the threatened contact with the threshold that my false step was all but entirely disregarded. In the middle of the house I took my station to the left of my wife, on a red bull's hide that lay with the neck towards the east, and with a hairy side uppermost. Now my father had, after a long search and with endless trouble, come upon a male child that had only brothers and no sisters, not even dead ones, and was the son of a father who had been the same, having had brothers only. Moreover, this was also actually true of his grandfather, and, to the accuracy of the statements in each case, legal testimony was forthcoming. This little boy was to be placed on my bride's knee. Already there stood at her side the copper dish containing lotus flowers from the swamps, which she was to lay in the folded hands of the child, and everything was prepared when the hapless little urchin was nowhere to be found. Not till afterwards, when it was too late, did a manservant discover that the child had found the sacrificial bed between the fires all too enticing and had rolled himself in the soft grass until he was practically buried in it. Now, of course, the sacrificial bed had to be made up with a new and fresh kusa grass cut, which was itself reversing the due order of things as the grass should have been cut at the rising of the sun. We were finally obliged, as I have indicated, to do without this crown of the whole function and to content ourselves with the hastily procured son of a mother who had borne only sons. But my father was in such a state of excitement at the failure of this precaution, on which he had built his highest hopes, that I feared a fit of apoplexy would suddenly put an end to his precious life. True, he would under no circumstances have committed the indiscretion of dying at that moment, in order not to interrupt the ceremonies in the worst of all possible ways, but this comforting reflection did not occur to me at the time. Martyred by the most horrible fears, and in order that no interval might ensue, I was obliged to pass the time of waiting for the substitute by reciting some appropriate mantras without pause. That hour I solemnly promised myself that, come what may, I would never marry again. Finally, after everything was ended, I was obliged to spend twelve nights with my new wife, who, by the way, was anything but the monster of ugliness my father's description had led me to expect, in absolute chastity, fasting rigorously and sleeping on the floor. This time it was twelve nights because my father thought it was better to be on the safe side and to do too much rather than too little. But the doing was distinctly painful to me, particularly because I had to deprive myself, during the whole time, of my favourite dishes, high seasonings and all. However, this period of probation I also managed to survive, and life ran on again on the old lines, though soon with a very substantial difference. Before long I was to see how thoroughly warranted was my aversion to my father's new marriage proposal. True, I had instantly comforted myself with the idea that, if a man had one wife, he might just as well have two, but alas, how sadly had I deceived myself. My first wife, Sita, was a sweet person, and had always seemed to possess a gentle demeanour. She certainly leaned to the side of mellowness rather than to that of irritable passion. And Savitri was also quite lovable, and had always been praised for her genuine warmth. 
and a true womanly softness. In the same way, brother, that water and fire both have truly beneficial qualities, when they meet on the hearth, one must be prepared for noise and steam. And from that unhappy day onward, there was indeed the sound of hissing in my home. It was misery. And I also chided myself for having brought this situation about, where two good women were set up in competition with each other, and thus caused to bring out the very worst in themselves. But imagine to yourself, if you can, what became of the situation when Savitri did indeed bear me the first of those five heroic sons. Now Sita accused me of not having wanted sons by her, and of having refrained from offering the fitting sacrifices in order that I might thus have an excuse for marrying another. While Savitri, when she was irritated by Sita, performed a very devil's dance of triumphant scorn. Then between the two there was a constant wrangle as to precedence. My first wife laying claim to the first position as having actually been the first, while the second made the same demand as the mother of my son. But worse was yet to come. One day Savitri dashed into me, trembling from head to foot in frenzied agitation, and demanded that I should send Sita away, as she wished to poison my beloved son. The boy, as it happened, had merely had an attack of colic from eating sweets. I rebuked her severely, but had scarcely freed myself from her presence when Sita stood before me, clamouring that our two lambs were not sure of their lives so long as that vile woman remained in the house. Her rival wished to get both of my dear little daughters out of the way in order that their dowries would not diminish the heritage of her son. So, under my roof, peace was no longer to be found. If you, brother, chanced to delay your steps at the farmhouse with a rich Brahmin who lives but a short way off, and heard how his two wives railed at one another, disputing in high shrill tones and shaking the air with their coarse language, then you have, so to speak, passed my house on the way. And it also became, I am sorry to confess, a proverbial saying in Eugenie at that time. The two agree, like Carmenita's wives. <laughs>